Desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 5, Ignorance or Innocence. Our featured story is from Johnny Bernard. She wrote it a while ago, before her successful novels. Unlike her novels, it's autobiographical. It's set in a small Texas town. It's partly about being an outsider, which can be lonely. But Johnny has this way of seeing the gift in things, even hard things like loneliness. I'm excited for you to hear why she starts every story with character and family, and what part of writing she equates to a runner's high. It's fantastic. She's fantastic, and she's clearly doing what she was meant to do. So at 50, which was a few years ago, uh, with the blessings of my family, uh, I was able to leave a full-time job and and devote myself full-time to writing. I just signed a contract on the fourth novel, uh, which will come out in 2022, and and that will be four novels in five years. Yeah. So, well, I'm just, Teresa, I'm, I'm grateful that I could do what I always wanted to do. All along the way to becoming an author, all of those jobs, all of those experiences prepared me to be a written storyteller. Yeah. Well, so did you, in those years where you were raising a family and teaching, did you have kernels for those stories all along? Were you working through those characters and those storylines for a long time? I, I did. I think artists, uh, whatever your medium is, I, I think a seed is planted in something we see, something we hear, and it stays with us until we could give birth to it. Yes. Yes. And I, so I'm struck by your storytelling um, being very family focused. So telling a story within the family, that is the oldest known institution to man, the family. That's where we learn to trust, where we learn to love. It develops our personality. Uh, You know, sometimes we carry those things from our childhood all the way into adulthood. Sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes they're not, which lends itself to the flawed characters. Uh, We're all flawed. We're all the walking wounded. Uh, if, If you're breathing, (laughs) <laughs> you have had something happen to you along the way. Yeah. And uh, it's usually that I begin with the character. And so I'll do a character sketch where I flesh her out completely. What time was she born? What was going on in the country at that time? What was the expectation of women born at that time that become teenagers and enter college? How did society view women then? And so that's how I flesh out a character. What, what is the music at that time? How are people dressing? Because I want that character to be very real yes. to the reader. They've got to be completely fleshed out. 
I think that's wonderful that that's where you start. Um, it is. I always begin with character and uh, I may have a little bit of the story, sometimes the ending. Uh, it's the middle that you have to let go as the author and let those characters take you there. Wow. I, and I know how absolutely strange it sounds. I've spoken with other writers about this. It's just that you get into that work in such a way, at least for me, that I'll wake up at two o'clock in the morning and, and I'll go to the keyboard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, it's a very interesting thing when that happens to you as an author. I think runners call it the runner's high. I, I have a friend uh, that's an artist and he says the same thing. You, we don't always choose when the muse comes to us, but we have to do the skeletal work, the frame of that novel, and then believe in the characters uh, that they, they become almost real to us. Someone we care about. Yes. Yes, you can feel that when you read the story. Thank you. That's a good place to stop and give you Johnny's featured story. It will take you through her window on moving to a small town. Ignorance or innocence. I had to leave. It was not my home. It was my father's home. He moved us from the suburbs of Houston to the flat coastal plains of South Texas in 1974. Forty years later, I remember the two extremes as visions. The Houston skyline shadowed by petrochemical plants with thermal flares lighting the night like shooting stars. And Ganado, tired and gray, with one road cutting through town and a blinking caution light swinging in the wind. Life was just like that then, one extreme to another. The people I went to school with were mostly farmers' children, or the working poor, whites, blacks, and Mexicans, with too many children and too many bills. They rode bulls and quarter horses in rodeos, drove combines that harvested corn, worked for a local merchant for $1.75 an hour, or were migrant farm workers who lived at a nondescript motel at the edge of town. They were proud people, said what was on their mind, and moved without hesitation. They loved and hated the same way, unencumbered. With little restraint in their actions, they drank hard and they worked hard. It was either ignorance or innocence that motivated them. The farm market roads of South Texas were littered with beer cans, punctured spleens, and twisted limbs every weekend as a testimony to their creed. On Monday morning, we huddled in our desks in homeroom, anticipating the news of a classmate propelled through a windshield into a barbed wire fence. For years, a blonde, chocolate-eyed cheerleader whose head was severed in a car accident has haunted my middle-aged dreams. She never ages, forever sixteen and beautiful. 
My best friend and her family lived in a two-bedroom house that hadn't seen a coat of paint in 30 years. They were Bohemians. Not in the artistic sense, but part of an ethnic group of Czechs who arrived in Texas in the late 19th century. In the pecking order of a small Texas town, they were slightly above blacks and Mexicans. Poor, Catholic, and of Eastern European descent, this family was handed a first-class ticket to the edge of town, a place where they rented from a prominent family until some miracle came along. Five children slept in one bedroom and the parents in the other. There was no central air or heat. In the winter, a 25-inch wide gas heater provided heat for seven people. The trick was to sequentially move your front and back sides in the middle of those 25 inches of heat, ensuring even distribution of warmth. This was not easily done in a large family. Arguments and shoving were part of the morning ritual. Don't stand so close to that damn thing. You'll catch your nightgown on fire. I did stand too close. And in return for my disobedience, I received second-degree burns on the back of my shins, resembling grill marks on a stake. The only happy day I remember in that family's life was the day the miracle arrived. They moved into their own home. The man who sold it to them had been their former landlord. The house needed a lot of work, but it had three bedrooms. The only son had a room of his own when he was 16. The four daughters shared a room. My father helped sheetrock and paint that house in exchange of my friend's father pouring a concrete sidewalk in front of our house. The two men tried to forge a friendship with whiskey and labor, but it didn't last. The last time I saw my friend was a year after high school graduation. I received a small college scholarship and left town the morning after graduation. She stayed and got married. When I returned home for summer break, I went by her house, her home as a married woman. She showed me her photo album of the wedding shower and wedding. The highlight of was a prenuptial shower where the hostesses presented the bride-to-be with a penis-shaped cake. The photograph showed women posing around the cake with their arms draped on each other's shoulders. There was a camaraderie there I recognized immediately, of one I did not belong. I never saw her again after that. I can't remember why. The only news that came over the years was that her father tried to commit suicide in the only home he owned. A lot of girls became pregnant during that four-year trial known as high school. Someone explained it to me as, only the good girls get caught. At the time, I remember being confused by the word caught and what it had to do with being good. During my sophomore year, a girl a year older than me went into labor in the high school bathroom. I didn't know she was pregnant. I didn't know if she was a good girl. The only thing I knew about her was she wore her father's shirts to school, and she hated to read. Once in civics class, the teacher asked her to read out loud. She immediately put her head on her desk and covered it with both arms, becoming invisible in the enormity of her father's white shirt. During that same time, I hosted a baby shower for a pregnant 16-year-old girl. Five girls came to the shower I gave in the living room. The mother of the pregnant teen refused to come. 
the one family member to attend was an older sister, who sat on the couch, unsmiling, clutching her purse in her lap, poised for flight at any minute. By hosting the baby shower, I forever labeled myself as an outsider. I wasn't from there. I never would be one of them. It was the same for my mother. She knew it at the time and didn't care. It took me longer to figure it out, because I accepted their excuses. I can't come to your party because I'm sick. I can't come to your party because we're going out of town. I can't come to your party because my mother thinks you're white trash. There was plenty of ostracizing to go around, but it was always worse for the girls who became pregnant in high school. The social norms of a small Texas town in the 70s sent pregnant, unwed mothers to live with a distant relative or a church home with the simple direct marquee, Texas Home for Unwed Mothers. The irony of the town's moral code was cruel. If you plan for sex, you're a slut. But don't get pregnant and embarrass us. No one knew that cruelty more than the pregnant, unwed mother. As soon as her belly swelled, she was gone, sent away with no forwarding address left behind. No one talked about it. Sometimes the girl would return with her baby, but she was different. Her sadness pervaded the entire school building. She was no longer a schoolgirl, but a mother with a broken heart. The guest of honor at the baby shower in my mother's living room kept her baby and married the baby's father. That violent boy became a violent man until he was killed on an offshore oil rig. The young widow with two children remained in the trailer house he bought for her. My mother felt sorry for that girl, like she did for a lot of the disenfranchised of that little town. I suppose most of her life she felt the same way, but she refused to accept it as a life sentence. She was one of the town's eccentrics, a black-headed, red-lipstick-wearing Catholic from South Louisiana. She was too much for that little town, too soulful, too emotional, too rice-and-gravy Cajun. The Protestant gentry farmers of German descent in Ganado didn't like her. A lot of people thought she was crazy. There were a lot of stories about my mom in those days. One remains with me. When my eight-year-old sister refused to wear the new shoes my mother bought her, my mother was outraged. Without a word, she quickly packed my sister's shoes and clothes and stuffed them into paper grocery bags. With the clothes in the trunk of her car and her four daughters in the back seat of the yellow 1976 Oldsmobile 98 Regency, my mother drove to the motel near Highway 59. The motel was a cinder block building of once white drabness, plopped on a concrete pad without a single plant, tree, or weed in its wake. It was a stopping point for truck drivers traveling Highway 59 and the seasonal home of the migrant farm workers and their children. My mother walked inside the motel office, only turning around once, silently forbidding us from getting out of the car. When she came out of the motel office a few minutes later, a man followed her. She handed him the paper bags of clothes with a pair of new shoes on top. We didn't say a word on the ride home. We stared straight ahead in the heat of the South Texas sun, 
our bare legs sweating, sticking to the vinyl-covered car seats. I never thought my mother was crazy. I thought she was courageous. She hosted a baby shower for a girl the town was ashamed of and gave clothes to migrant farm workers everyone called wetbacks. Forty years later, I cannot separate two images of her. The picture of the little girl in her first communion photograph, clutching a white lily with white-gloved hands, and an expressionless, middle-aged woman with black hair and red lips, drinking coffee on the side porch of our house in Ganado. My first job was in that little town. The owner's son rode his bicycle to the dairy mart every day. His dog Bobo rode in the wire basket near the handlebars. Society had many names for Rusty then. Retard, mongoloid, idiot, and moron. Our job was to close the restaurant. The first thing Rusty did after the last customer left was turn up the radio. He then stacked the dining room chairs, sometimes six chairs high. Together, we carried five-gallon buckets of hot water and vinegar for mopping the floor. We worked from the back to the entrance, pushing our mops across the linoleum floor of the dining room. At the entrance door, we rested the mops outside the building. I reached back into the dining room and turned off the light. Once the door was locked, Rusty would holler, Good night! and whistle for his dog sleeping near his bicycle. Off the two of them would ride, in the quiet, deserted streets of Ganado, on a weekday night in the late 70s. I kept that job until I graduated from high school. I said goodbye to everyone, beginning the morning of my graduation, from school and Ganado. I met my friends that morning on a farm outside of town, where we ceremoniously stripped to our bras and panties, and swam in a rice canal. There, the irrigation pump bellowed clear, cold water into the lushness of early rice. It was the last time we were all together, laughing. The next day, I left the blinking caution light at the four-way stop of Ganado, forever. What I brought with me was a realization that life was a chasm between ignorance and innocence. This made me a target, but also a runner. Every four-way stop I came to in life, I encountered like I did that swinging caution light in Ganado. I plowed through it and never looked back. I ran and ran until my heart burst, and the small-town girl was completely lost somewhere along the way. I returned to Ganado last summer to bury my father. My past came to the funeral service. It spoke to me as if everything was unchanged, despite the passing of 33 years. I was the girl who lived in the White House on the corner and worked at the Dairy Mart. I was still the girl, not from here. And then perhaps the gift is from the loneliness is that we develop a great empathy for others that are outsiders. That is, that is the gift behind that feeling of loneliness. I, I it, love that, it, that is beautiful. Well, I always refer to uh, Maslow, the great psychologist mm. and uh, the hierarchy of need. Yes. And uh, at the top of that is self-actualization where we could love ourselves and we love others. 
that are completely different from us. But in the beginning, and to get to self-actualization or to get to the purity of love for self and others, our shelter needs have to be met. All these things. And they're really, Teresa, all the things we're working towards in life as human beings. I, I believe that. Um, yeah. You, you know, every day is a school day, correct? Every day we should be learning right. how to get to that. Yes. I think this was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Johnny. I really, I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. Thank you, Teresa. Wishing you and yours all the best. Stay safe. You too. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Johnny's novels can be found everywhere you buy books. I'll put a link to her website in the show notes. I hope you'll also look up her encouraging TED Talk and check out the many ways she helps other writers. She also shared a picture of her mother on Johnny's wedding day. I'll put it on the Desideratum Facebook page. Thanks for listening.